From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. As the state makes progress fighting the opioid epidemic, Colorado loses ground on another front. The methamphetamine problem has come back with a vengeance. Why meth has taken hold here, and who's in its grip? I used to think that there was this black web that was like covering my body, kind of like a veil or a drape. And I would sit in the mirror and look at it, and I would take a knife and try to slice it off. Plus, a promising treatment that's actually intended for something else. And one man's journey from addiction to addiction counselor. Later, I'll bet you recognize this sound. We want to know if this is an extraordinary year for cicadas. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Opioids get a lot of attention, but Colorado has a methamphetamine problem, too, and it's getting worse. Today, the extent of the problem and a new idea to treat it, plus a candid conversation with someone who used to be addicted and now helps others. First up, how meth has gotten a stranglehold. Here's CPR's Ben Marcus. For 10 years, Hunter Hobbs was a heroin user. That's what was big in North Carolina, where he's from. Then he moved to Colorado, where he was introduced to methamphetamine. And it was everywhere, you know? And it was very easy to get. It was like almost, um, it was just, I would buy other drugs and, and the person I was buying them from would, would provide meth as well, just kind of give it to me. Hobbs says it was cheap. He used about a gram a day, which would cost $20. Hobbs has been sober for years, but he can see that the meth problem is getting worse just by walking around downtown Denver. It's like I can just spot the behavior. I can spot kind of the way people are, are carrying themselves or moving about. Uh, I can see it from a mile away. My, my girlfriend, too, when she's out, and I, and I tell her, I'm like, hey, you know, this is an area where there's a lot of people like that. She doesn't even notice at all. It just, mm. just goes right over her head. But law enforcement in Colorado have noticed. In Denver, meth possession arrests now outnumber cocaine and heroin combined. Jason Dunn is Colorado's U.S. attorney. It's, it's, the methamphetamine problem has come back with a vengeance. And it's all coming from Mexico. In fact, the cartels have gotten so good at production that they put domestic labs out of business in the U.S. The cartels can utilize a global supply chain to pump out meth on an industrial scale. Dunn says law enforcement has actually had some success in taking down Mexican labs, but it still hasn't made a difference. These are, I'm talking huge production facilities. They are seeing no increase in price on the street in the U.S. or a drop in um, quantity. He says these cartels have shown an extraordinary ability to start up new facilities, and meth doesn't rely on plants in a field. There's no natural product that needs to be grown like cocaine or heroin, um, and it's being shifted um, just to, they just set up another lab somewhere else. And continuing to import vast quantities of chemicals from China, the purity and potency of the product is unlike anything they've seen. Dunn says the byproduct is a dramatic increase in deadly meth overdoses in Colorado. So while we're making some progress on the opioid front, uh, we're still um, losing ground on the methamphetamine front. Fatal meth overdoses exceeded heroin for the first time in a decade. Lisa Rayville, who runs the needle exchange on Colfax, says some people addicted to heroin are switching to meth. 
because they don't think that you can overdose on stimulants and you can absolutely overdose on stimulants. Those present little um, little different, more as a heart attack, stroke, or seizure. Denver and Colorado stimulant overdoses are up because there's not a lot of good information out there. She says she's trying to alter that perception among those who come through the needle exchange. She says half of people she sees use meth, half use heroin. Many use both. And she says a good portion of users are homeless. When you're unhoused, you're very public and you're always trespassing. And so obviously the first thing that's probably going to happen is that you're going to come into contact with law enforcement. They're going to pat you down and you're going to have some sort of possession. She says that could be partly to blame for the surge in possession arrests. Methamphetamine arrests have tripled in Denver in the last few years, leading to an increase in other types of crime as well. Thefts of items and parts from cars have risen along with meth. Hunter Hobbs says meth keeps you up and moving. And when he was using, petty crime was a part of the lifestyle. I know for myself, I was just like trying to take anything that wasn't bolted down, you know, to try and sell to somebody to support my habit. So Hobbs was eventually arrested and while sitting in jail, came to the realization he needed to get sober. He says those experiences gave him an inside look at many of the problems that ail Denver. Drug use, um, crime. Uh, homelessness, you know, mental health. Um, it's its all kind of intertwined. And as long as meth is cheap and available, Hobbs says you're going to have a much harder time addressing those problems. I'm Ben Marcus, CPR News. Now, kicking meth can be a Herculean effort. And until recently, there hasn't been a step-down drug like methadone. But some practitioners say a medication already on the market can help. Here's CPR's Andrea Dukakis. Early last year, Nancy Best set up a recovery center in a small Victorian home in downtown Steamboat Springs. She'd been awarded state money to treat people addicted to opioids. And when we got here, we discovered that, yes, that was a big problem, but just a bit, as big a problem was the methamphetamine use. Bess says by now people know opioid addiction is everywhere. But in a Tony resort town like Steamboat, she says, people have this idea that methamphetamine addiction happens somewhere else. I have a lot of people that live here that say, oh, we're safe. You know, my kids are involved in sports and my kids are straight A students and, you know, it's not going to affect us. But the truth is there's a lot of partying going on here. One of the locals Best would eventually help is Melinda McDowell. McDowell had used drugs for years. She used coke and smoked crack. She'd been addicted to opioids, but no meth until one night in 2017 when her mother died suddenly of a stroke. That night I went over to a neighbor's house and he had crystal meth. I was hooked from the first hit. It was the biggest high I'd ever experienced. Then that big high got more elusive. McDowell smoked more. She went from 240 pounds to 110. Her children were taken away and put in foster homes. McDowell started having hallucinations. I used to think that there was this black web that was like covering my body, kind of like a veil or a drape. And I would sit in the mirror and look at it. And I would take a knife and try to slice it off. One night, lying on the bathroom floor, McDowell figured if she didn't get help, she'd die or kill herself. She'd heard about Nancy Best, who'd recently opened the door to Road to Recovery in Steamboat. I called Nancy on her phone, and I begged her to 
help me. She thought she had goop coming out of her eyes and out of her fingers, and she was scratching herself, and, and she was like, I don't know what to do. The call came at a good time. Best, who's a certified addiction counselor and a physician's assistant, had just returned from a convention where she'd heard about several studies. And the latest research indicates that the same medication that we use for alcohol use disorder, naltrexone, can really help to stop the craving of methamphetamine. Best had McDowell come into the office and started her on naltrexone and later a longer-acting drug called Vivitrol. Within like three or four hours, I knew something was happening because it had been like 48 hours since I'd smoked anything, and the withdrawals started going away, the shakes started going away, the headaches. I wasn't panicking. I could feel some relief. And that evening, I took my second pill, and I knew that something was different. A few cautionary notes here. At this point, the drugs aren't FDA-approved for addiction to meth. Studies are ongoing. Beth says while it works for a lot of people, it doesn't work for everyone. And she says while it's standard care to treat opioid addiction with drugs like methadone and suboxone, there's still resistance to replacing one drug with another. She thinks that's a misunderstanding. What it really means is that we're using any medication that's necessary to help stabilize that person's health so that they aren't coping with illicit medications. And so they're able to engage in the counseling. Best says her clients have to do talk therapy along with medication therapy. And the goal is to wean them off that medication too. Melinda McDowell says getting off meth has been arduous, even with the medicine. But she credits the meds for helping her stay sober now for more than a year. It's still an uphill battle. McDowell recently learned that the courts had denied her efforts to get her kids back. She's now interviewing for jobs, and at some point, she wants to go to school so she can treat people like her, desperate to break free from methamphetamine. I'm Andrea Dukakis, CPR News. Now, one man's journey from methamphetamine addiction to becoming an addiction counselor. Darren Valdez works at Sobriety House in Denver, the place where he was actually treated in 2014. And Darren, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, How and when were you introduced to meth? What were the circumstances? Uh, You know, it was about, um, I'd say seven to eight years ago. Um, I didn't realize that uh, I went to college at the University of Colorado Boulder. um, And part of the, what goes on there is a lot of partying, you know. Um, I was a big drinker. uh, But it was just normal, you know. Um, everybody drinks there, so it's not such a bad thing. Um, but after college, everybody went on to do, you know, great things, and I just bartended, you know, <laughs> because that fit my lifestyle. Um, I went out every night and drank, um, and then I got into cocaine, uh, and then mess just kind of took over after that. Uh, do you remember the first time you tried it? I do, I do. Very vividly. Um, what sticks out in your mind about it? Um, just the, you know, just the absence of of understanding I had of, of what I was getting into. Um, it meth doesn't have a very good, you know, marketing campaign. Um, I 
you pretty much know that you're going to lose your teeth. It's it's all this bad stuff that comes with it. And I just had no thought of what I was getting into at the time. But immediately, once you once you try it that first time, it, it's I've heard some people say it wasn't for them. For me, it was like um, it's just like I was home. Um, it it just made me feel so complete and so uh, every sense was alive. Was there something about uh, your life? You you say that you were bartending, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. So you're keeping, I imagine, late hours. Mm-hmm. I know that in general, that kind of hospitality and food service that can be a tough life. Mm-hmm. It becomes a, it, it just becomes an addiction in itself because you are just constantly on the go, constantly on the go. Um, and uh, I think that's what what meth was was transferred to. It's, it was just that drug makes you always on, and you always have energy, and you never get tired. Um, it's the craziest thing. It's the most evil thing I've ever seen, I've ever come across. We heard uh, earlier in the program that what attracts people to meth sometimes is the cost, is how cheap it is. Mm-hmm. It, was that part of the equation for you? Well, it, it works well because you 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 lose interest in working, doing anything. Um, jobs don't become important. Your family doesn't become important. You lose, that becomes the only thing that you're working for. It becomes your God, if you will. Huh. Um, and, and, you know. And so uh, it needs to be cheap in a way, right? Because mm-hmm. you're losing all of the things. And you that... have to get high constantly, uh-huh. constantly. So you have to keep smoking, keep smoking. So you need something. I mean, cocaine was hugely expensive and you need money for that. Mess would last you 24 hours, you know. Did you steal? Oh, yeah. You did. Yeah. The, the line of what's right and wrong becomes um, non-existent. Um, the only thing that matters is to uh, not feel that low. What do you remember stealing? Um, you know, for me, I, that I was I was brought up really well with a good sense of right and wrong. Um, so it took a long time. Um, and, and the situation had to get really bleak before I ever did. Um, I was sleeping behind dumpsters, you know. Um, I have a bachelor's degree from CU Boulder with a business degree, and I'm sleeping behind dumpsters in Capitol Hill. Um, I weighed 105 pounds. Um, I think the only thing truly illegal I ever did was I uh, I found a credit card and I used it. But um, and then when I would stay at people's homes, I would I would I would take things from their home to trade for uh, drugs. Um, you are sitting in the studio with three chips in front of you. These are chips from a 12-step program. They're signs of your progress in recovery, of the time that you have under your belt. And I know that in recovery programs, making amends is really important. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you been able to make amends Yeah. to the people that you... Yeah, the hardest part um, about... When, when meth takes you so far away from the, all your loved ones and the people that, that really can help you. Um, it creates this chasm, this, this crater in between you, and you have so much guilt and shame that you don't want to, you don't want to go home and, and admit that you have just really screwed up. Um, so five years after... Which would actually be like a greater reason to keep using, perhaps. Yeah. Like that, that's a vicious yeah, cycle, it, just builds it seems upon to itself. Uh-huh. So... Um, when I finally decided to come home, um, this lady at the Rose Medical had talked me into going home to see my mom. 
Um, and I hadn't seen her in five years. And um, I found out later she was making all these uh, emails and, and, and messages. Darren, where are you? Darren, please come home. Darren, your sister's graduating. Darren, your sister's getting married. I'm the oldest of 10. Um, and I didn't hear any of those messages. So when I got sober, I came home on Christmas Day. And I walked in, missing teeth and weighing 110 pounds. Um, they welcomed me with open arms, not knowing if I was alive or dead. My mom just had this huge smile on her face. So one of the biggest amends I made was, uh, you know, a couple of years later after going through the steps and working with my sponsor, he helped me to, he helped me to uh, go and, and sit in front of her. And I went on the deck and I said, Mom, um, I need to make amends with you. Um, and I talked about how sorry I was for not calling her, not doing anything, um, and putting her through so many horrible nights. And she just, she just smiled and said, I love you. And that made me feel clean, made me feel good, like I could keep going. And it's little moments like that. These, these amends, you sit in front of people and you, and you bare your heart and you tell them how sorry you are and, and what you're going to do to help them. And all they do is look you in the eye and say, I love you. You know, my brother, I got to go see his his baby when he had his uh, second baby, and he called me, and I hadn't heard from him in six years because I hadn't talked to him. And the first phone call I get from him is, Darren, I'm having a baby. Would you like to come visit her? And I got to the hospital, and, and I got to hold this little baby as a day old. And she grabbed my finger, and it's little moments like that that keep me sober. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are focusing in the first part of the show today on a resurgence of meth in Colorado. And I'm speaking right now with Darren Valdez, uh, who used meth and now is sober and a certified addiction counselor at Sobriety House in Denver. That's actually where uh, he, in part, got sober himself. And and how how did you kick meth? It's incredibly difficult, as we've been saying. You know, we talk about this in the program. It's not, it's not me that did anything. Um, it was a community of people that just got behind me. Um, this nurse sounds pivotal. Oh yeah, she was an angel. Um, I'd gone in to the hospital. Just I was, I was. I'd fallen asleep, and the snow was covering me up. Um, and I walked over to this hospital. And I tried to just stay in the corner and not be noticed to stay warm. And this woman came over with some hot coffee and uh, she just had the kindest words to me. And she said, why don't you go home? And I looked up and I realized that that was a hospital. I was born in Rose Medical. and Oh, my. So it just made sense. It clicked finally. You know, people had told me forever, why don't you go home? You know, why don't you get help? But it wasn't until that moment that it, it just clicked. And so, and so I, your parents took you in to their home so that you could recover? Well, that's the funny part. So I, I finally went home, and I, I stayed there for a week. And I, well, that day, Christmas Day, I, was, I went out and got high again. Um, it's insidious. Um, so my parents said, you know, we love you, but you can't stay here. They put my bags on the front porch, and they said, we love you. Call us when you get better. And if they hadn't done that, I'd probably be dead. Is that when you turned to sobriety house? Yeah, I started out at Denver Cares, which is a, which is a detox facility in downtown Denver. 
And I stayed there a day and I immediately ran away because <laughs> I was uh, full of, um, I don't know what, I, I just, I was an idiot. Um, and then by God's grace, I got a call from Sobriety House that weekend. Um, and it was the only place that had a bed open. And they said, we have a grant. We just happen to have this one grant left. Um, if you can be here Monday um, and you have $400 to pay for the deposit, um, we'll get you in. So my brother Jason flew out from Minnesota and he, uh, he, he said, I'll make you a promise. He says, I'll get you in here if you promise not to leave. So I kept that promise. How, how does it transform being an addiction counselor when you have walked that road yourself? It's, I think it's an essential part of uh, a whole community of people trying to help someone who's new in recovery. You need someone who's walked the path and you need someone who's, who knows everything about the science of, of addiction and the science of recovery. Um, the combination of those two is what really helps, along with a sponsor and a, and, a, and a home group, if you will, a support community. It's all these things that come together for the perfect storm of, of recovery. Um, it's not just one thing. The medication, I think, is, is, is important for people as a mindset almost um, to give them a little like a swimming pool. You hold on to the edge of the swimming pool so that you can eventually let go. Some sort of step-down medication yeah. like Andrea reported on earlier. Yeah. You know, I was interested in hearing that people who have used meth can spot other people who are using meth. Oh, yeah, I heard that. Yeah, and I think you were nodding when you heard mm -hmm. that. Yeah, you can tell it's it's a wiry movement. Um, you've been up for days, and um, when you use meth, all your all your uh, your uh, nerve endings get really acute. Um, they start hurting almost. Um, so you'll notice people with the uh, end of their fingertips will be all dry. Their mouths will be dry. Their 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 eyes will be sucked sucked into their head. You know, um, and then their movements are just real wiry, like like they're not driving the boat anymore. You well, know, the substances. Yeah. Are you, to some extent, surprised that you're alive today? Do you think? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think of you sleeping. What was it near a dumpster while it was snowing? And I think about how cold you must have been, how vulnerable you were. Oh yeah. Um, I would definitely be dead by now. Um, but that wasn't my path. I. Uh, I have found purpose in spending every single day working with people across my desk that um, were just like me. I see myself come in the door every single day. You see yourself come in the door. Darren, thank you for sharing your story with us. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you. Darren Valdez works as a certified addiction counselor at Sobriety House in Denver. He started using meth in about 2007, got sober in 2014. So a friend of mine has some really noisy neighbors. He finds himself turning up his music and TV because they're so loud. And so I asked him to record the sound. Maybe you recognize the cicadas in this in Denver. And the question is, are they out in force this year? We're going to put that question to entomologist from the Butterfly Pavilion, Mario Padilla. Mario, welcome back to the show. 
Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for having me. We're going to keep folks in suspense for a little while as to whether this is an exceptional cicada year, because I want to get to the fact that cicadas are known as true bugs. What do you mean by true bugs? Yeah, they are known as true bugs. So whenever you see uh, an insect and somebody says bug, you can correct them and say, actually, that's not a bug. There's a special group of insects called true bugs, and they include the cicadas, which you just mentioned, um, but also aphids or um, actual stink bugs. This is uh, a kind of anatomical classification if you're a true bug, and cicadas are that. Exactly. So uh, historically, it was an anatomical uh, classification for this particular group. Subsequently, um, DNA has shown that these groups are, you know, they have a common ancestor somewhere ah, down the line. So okay. they all belong to a, the true bugs. So an aphid and a cicada are actually genetically linked. Definitely. Okay, that's fascinating. Yep. Uh, it turns out that there are many different kinds of cicadas. Cicada is not one thing. Exactly. How are they making the sound that like drowns out my friend Christopher's Netflix and chill? <laughs> yeah, so millions of years of evolution have... Um... These the cicadas have had this special organ called a timble on their bodies, and it's the males who are making the sound, and they are um, basically making a sound to court females. Okay, a timble. Can you describe what organ. a timble Yeah, is? so it's an organ that's found on the abdomen. So we think of the head, the thorax, and the abdomen as kind of that back uh, portion of an insect. Okay. And this particular um, organ is... Um, moving in such a way, the muscles are flexing in such a way that it's making this sound. And these males have kind of a hollow, not completely hollow, but um, an abdomen that lets them um, kind of reflect the sound all over in all directions. So it's really hard to pinpoint where they are. It's not like coming from one direction, but it's kind of humming in all directions. Oh, I have had that experience kind of orally, right? That uh, You know they're in the area, but you're not quite sure where they're coming from. And I think you said that this is a, this is a mating thing. Yes, this, exactly. This sound. Help us understand a cicada's life cycle. I, I have always heard that they start in the ground and emerge. Is that True. Well, initially, they actually start in a stem. So the female cicada will lay an egg into a stem. A stem of? Of a plant, any plant that it's living on, a stem, a twig, and that egg will hatch. The nymph, baby cicada, will fall into the ground, burrow under the ground really, really deeply, and feed on the sap from the roots of of a tree. And it doesn't really cause that much damage. Trees are pretty much used to it, so it's kind of a... Symbiotic relationship. Exactly, exactly. So those babies are going to be feeding on those roots below ground. Um, Once they get old enough, which for some of the cicadas we have in Colorado can be anywhere from two to five years, they'll crawl up onto the tree and then emerge as an adult. And they're doing so to court a mate and start the process over again. Exactly. So the adult stage only, uh, they live four to six weeks maybe at the most. So in that time, they're going to be feeding a little bit, mostly mating. And making that noise. Exactly. We have heard so much. Ah, uh, okay. How often are they coming up from the ground? Because I have also heard that cicadas follow a kind of rhythm. You know, yeah. that they're only emerging every few years or something like that. That's not quite true. Like not all cicadas only come up every few years. It's true for a certain species of cicadas, uh, the periodical cicadas, which we actually don't have. They're an East Coast um, anomaly, I guess you would say. The periodical cicadas. Okay, that's the name of my new band for (laughs) sure. Okay, we don't have periodic. We don't. Cicadas. So they're coming up every year? Yeah, exactly. And and their um, life as a nymph, so the immature stage that's underground, can be anywhere from two to five years. But that's kind of overlapping. So they're going to be coming out every single year. Okay. 
Uh, let's get to the million-dollar question here. Do, can we say if this is an unusually, you know, strong year for cicadas? It's really hard to determine that based on, one, is their lifespan. Uh, they live a very long time as immature, so their parents might have had a really good year and uh, five years ago. And then they were able to lay a bunch of eggs and those eggs were um, hatched and they were able to be very successful. And then five years later, we might see the repercussions of that. Ah, interesting. You need to think back. You have to trace back. You have to trace back. Their life cycles. Are there conditions that might have led to a particularly good year this year, though? Um, yeah, it, it could have been a nice, mild year. So a lot of the immatures in the ground were surviving. Maybe the frost didn't go that deep to freeze them, or they had the ability to dig deep enough to avoid the frost. Okay. Have you noticed them more than past years this we, year? We think? have a good stand of trees over at the Butterfly Pavilion, and, and, and they are quite loud this year, but I haven't really done the... Uh, yeah, the research myself to determine whether that's been a really good year. But the point is that when you ask it's if it's a big year for cicadas, you actually have to think back several years. Exactly. And uh, to their genesis, in other words. Exactly. To the origin, original um, immature cicadas that were hatching from those eggs and crawling into the ground. Okay. But we have had at least some conditions, though, that might have meant they survive underground a bit longer. Exactly. A little bit more moisture, um, which creates a little bit more food for them, right? Because they are sap feeders. They're feeding from plants and trees that create sap. So more moisture in the environment could have led to a really great year for cicadas. Okay. And naturally, with climate change and things perhaps heating up and drying up, that's going to affect their life cycle. Oh, absolutely. They could emerge a little bit too early because um, maybe they didn't have enough resources in the ground or their ranges would shift um, to the north. So as the northern portions of the, the states are getting warmer, then that means cicadas can um, populate those areas a little bit better. Hmm. And it might be detrimental to those areas depending on the natural enemies that might be eating those cicadas. Okay. Very briefly, Mario, do you like the sound they make? Oh, I love it. It's one of my favorite sounds ever. Sound of the summer. Entomologist Mario Padilla of the Butterfly Pavilion in Westminster talking about the complicated picture around cicadas. Here's one way an errand can become a nightmare. You park in the wrong lot, and when you return to your car, there's a boot on it. CPR's Sam Brash has the story of one wheel clamp and how it led Colorado to regulate an underground industry. Fox Mikovich forgot some Rockies tickets at home in 2017. That's how this whole thing started. On a lunch break, the CU Boulder student ran back to his apartment, only to find construction blocking the parking lot. So he parked at the complex next door. For just like a five-minute trip in and out, I thought I was going to be completely fine. He returned to find a boot immobilizing his Ford Windstar. A few minutes later, someone arrived in a sedan labeled Colorado Parking Services and demanded $123. I kind of thought I got scammed at that point, um, which is kind of why I called my dad and tried to figure things out. The thing that hit me the most was $123 seemed pretty high. This is Andrew Mikovich, Fox's dad. He looked into it and discovered that, according to state law, towing companies could only charge $70 for a car they disable but don't move. Mikovich figured that meant the same rules would apply here. But when he called the company... He goes, we're not a towing company. We don't tow cars, so we don't have to follow the rules. 
at which point I was fairly stunned. Colorado Parking Services declined to comment for this story. But what Mikovich discovered is that this guy was right. According to state researchers, only Denver and Avon regulate the private booting industry. So if you don't live in one of those places, you could buy a boot right now, find a business that wants you to patrol their parking lot, and start immobilizing cars for cash. That has been legal and not regulated whatsoever by the state. And that's why we have these predatory practices going on. This guy is Democratic Senate Majority Leader Steve Fenberg. He represents Boulder at the state capitol. And last year, Mikovich sent him and other state officials a letter detailing his legal detective work. I met with him for coffee. I think he was a little surprised that he actually got a meeting. (laughs) And at that point, he said, "Okay, let's try to do a legislative solution to it. And Fenberg, he followed through. Last legislative session, he passed language to regulate car booters a lot like towing companies. The prospect of state regulation worries Joel Perry. He operates a front-range booting business called Park It Right LLC. Everybody wants to try to regulate away bad people. Well, bad people don't follow the regulations anyway. Perry agreed to let me see how he operates. All right. Each night, he loads into a bright green sprinter van with his wife, Sherry, and their grown daughter, Bethany. This is kind of our family fun. We go out and, and handle our business. The Perrys usually patrol from about 9 p.m. to 2 a.m., visiting like 30 to 40 apartment complexes. They work quickly when they arrive at a lot. You can see it's pretty good exercise. Mm-hmm. Checking each car for a parking permit, making sure its registration tags are up to date. Eventually, at a complex in Westminster, Bethany finds an unauthorized SUV. So I've observed it for having no permit. Now I do time, date, stamp pictures. Once she's documented the car, her dad attaches a patented bright green Park It Right wheel clamp. We go through the uh, tie rod underneath and then uh, the chain through here and tighten it up. And The final cost to remove this boot? $175. Perry knows it's easy to see those people as victims, but he says somebody has to police these lots. You know, people view it as a gutter-type industry. I always saw that as an opportunity for me to do better. Do better by avoiding some less savory booting practices, like just lurking in a lot, waiting for someone to head into the wrong store, or sharing kickbacks with property owners. But even if every private booter followed Perry's personal standards, there's still that question of how much it costs to remove the boot. Because, like, can you charge as much as you want right now? We could charge as much as we want, but the market only accepts so much. That's why I think the market is always the corrector. There's just one problem with that argument, says Senate Majority Leader Steve Fenberg. Remember, he's the lawmaker behind these new booting regulations. In most markets, companies compete on price. But booters don't really have to worry about that because they have your car. It's locked up, and they're the only ones with a key. I think that is when the government has a role to say, wait a minute. There's a level of authority and autonomy you can have over your parking lot. You can't be doing something in order to profit Uh, that is just taking advantage of people. But ultimately, he hopes the upcoming rules will offset the risk of extortion. State regulators are now working out the specifics. They're set to take effect at the start of next year. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News. Now, you probably know that these wheel clamps are called the Denver Boot, but why? We answered that Monday through Colorado Wonders, and you can hear that story on our podcast or at CPR.org. We know that Martin Segarra of Denver heard that story because he wrote in afterwards to share that his family was in France a few years ago. They took a van 
to the Normandy invasion beaches. And when the driver learned they were from Denver, Segarra says the driver perked up. Tell me, was the Denver boot really invented in Denver? I was shocked. I had to stop for a second to process the question because no one had ever asked me that before. Segarra answered yes. He believed the Denver boot had been invented in Denver. And so in his message to us, he writes... The Denver boot apparently has an international influence. Thanks for confirming my correct answer to the bus driver. You're welcome, Martin. And we love it when listeners share how our stories affect them. Find all the ways to get in touch at CPR.org connect. At CPR.org connect. This is Colorado Matters. The state of California legalized medical marijuana first, and they did it in 1996. But what a lot of people don't know is that that came directly out of the AIDS epidemic of the late 80s and early 90s. The guys always wanted to smoke weed because it was the thing that the guys noticed that made them feel immediately better. What medical marijuana owes to the LGBTQ community. On the latest episode of On Something, subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Tomorrow, firefighters, 343 of them, will climb the stairs of a high-rise in downtown Denver. 343 is the number of firefighters who died in New York City on 9-11. The climb is 110 stories, the height of the World Trade Center towers. We learned more about this stair climb from Oren Bursagel-Breeze of the Castle Rock Fire Department. This was back on the 10th anniversary of 9-11. And let's re-listen to that conversation. Tell me what it feels like when you're doing this. Are you quiet? Are you talking? Is it hard? Yeah, all of the above. <laughs> um, we uh, it, There's a lot of quiet time. You just hear that, like, tromping of steps and boots on steps. And the, the stairs are they're metal stairs, and it's a concrete stairwell. So it's it's a really enclosed, loud... Echoey. Echoey place. And you can hear people several floors above and below you when you're climbing. There's something both poetic and kind of ominous about that, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, sure enough. Yeah. And, you know, while you're climbing, there's no way that we could ever know what those guys felt, saw, experienced. But you think about kind of what it would be like and the effort that they must have gone through to have to do all that stuff and then to think about once they reached the floors, then they had to go to work, you know, and and just seeing all the other people coming down the stairs, we don't experience any of that. So it's just us in the stairwell. Because on September 11th, 2001, there would have been people tens of thousands pouring out of the building as the firefighters were walking up. Exactly. You know, you get through the first, I don't know, 20, 30 floors and and you're doing okay because we climb in full gear. Um, with hose packs and SCBA and all that kind of stuff, which can weigh in excess of 100 pounds. SCBA, the breathing apparatus. The breathing apparatus, correct. And it's really hard and really hot and and really uncomfortable. And so it goes from being quiet to, you know, the the talking that starts is encouraging each other to get through the tough parts and then, hey, don't don't forget about what those guys did and, and the effort that they put forth. Who will you be climbing for? And does that change from year to year? Yes, it changes from year to year. Each climber is given a picture and and the name of one of the firefighters. We hand them out randomly. Is it that um, day or do you yeah, have some as as they start their first trip up the stairs, oh, we wow. hand them hand them out a, a picture and then and then they climb with them. I climb have climbed in memory of Chief Ray Downey, who was a special operations chief at the time. Special operations units do like collapse rescue and water rescue 
trench rescue, all, all that type of stuff. And, and after you're assigned this person and you've done the climb, are, are people kind of interested in looking the person up, seeing who, who this was? Yeah, it's something that we started a couple of years ago. We reached out to the climbers and we say, hey, we really want you to, to find the families, to make some sort of connection, which is difficult. There's some families that don't want to be reached and there's other ones that are a little bit more receptive. And that's all completely understandable. And, and so we give them a couple of resources online to turn to and ask them to go. And, and if nothing else, leave a message somewhere that says, hey, my name is so-and-so. I climbed in memory of your loved one. And we don't forget. We, we remember the sacrifice that not only he made, but that you guys have made as well. Well, have relationships developed? Yeah, some relationships have developed. I was just talking to somebody last night, as a matter of fact, who's reached out to a family and, and they've exchanged photos and stories and, you know, about their own personal lives and stuff. And it's actually one of the most rewarding aspects of this. I mean, certainly there's the, there's the gratification that we all receive individually when we complete a climb like this. But it pales in comparison to the gratification you receive when you let somebody else know, you know, we haven't forgotten. So you you have climbed in the past for it. Was it Chief Downey? Chief Ray Downey. Ray Downey. And have you been able to have any contact with, with his? I've had some contact with his family, his wife and his son. It's been minimal contact, and, and that's completely fine. They, they know what we've done and that I've climbed in his memory, and, and that's good enough for me. You carry photos of the firefighter for whom you're climbing. Mm-hmm. And uh, what do you do with that photo? Do you look at it occasionally when you're climbing the stairs? Yeah, when you're climbing the stairs, it comes in handy to look at when you need that little extra bit of motivation. I know most of the guys, if not all of them, keep the photos and they'll carry them with them in their bunker gear just on the fire trucks when they go back to, to work or when they volunteer. Uh, I keep mine with me all the time. Even though you may never have met that person you kind of establish a connection. How did this idea first come about? Well, there was five of us, even a slightly larger group than that, that were meeting every month up in Denver, a group of Denver firefighters and Castle Rock firefighters. And we were just meeting on the first Saturday of every month to climb stairs. And what we were doing that for was PT, physical training, and just some camaraderie. So then when September of 2005 rolled around, um, we said, hey, wait a minute, the, the 11th is pretty close to this first Saturday thing, so let's move it over to the 11th and climb 110 flights. And when we were climbing, we were sort of realizing what we were doing and what we were climbing for. Then we just realized when we finished it, we were like, man, we need to do some of this and we need to take it bigger. And it, and you did, and it has grown. How did this spread so far? A couple years ago... Uh, the National Fallen Firefighter Foundation came to us and said, essentially, we really like what you guys did here. Is there a way that we can do more with this and take it nationally? And one of the things that's come up since then, so there was a 343 firefighters that were killed on the 11th itself. And all the people, the thousands of responders and, and FDNY members that worked down there in the recovery efforts and the rescue efforts and for weeks and months and months at Ground Zero, are now dealing with all these 9-11-related diseases. Lung issues, breathing problems. Cancers. Cancers. All, respiratory issues, all that kind of stuff. There's going to be, when this is all said and done, a lot more people that are going to die because of what happened on September 11th than what actually occurred that day. Uh, and one of our focuses was to see if there was a way that we could continue to support those people because, as we all know, the event happens, 
we think about it, we remember it, but we kind of walk away from it after that. And that's one of the things that we don't want to do is walk away from it. And all these guys are making maybe not the exact same, but a similar sacrifice. And so all the money that we're able to raise is going to go towards the Fallen Firefighter Foundation and their efforts to support those families in the future. Oren, thank you so much for being with us. Absolutely. Lieutenant Oren Bersagel Breeze speaking with me on the 10th anniversary of 9-11. He's a lieutenant with the Castle Rock Fire Department and one of the founders of the Denver 9-11 Memorial Stair Climb. This year's climb is tomorrow at 18th and California in downtown Denver. It starts just after 9 a.m., which is when the second plane hit the World Trade Center. There will be a moment of silence before the firefighters begin their ascent. In Granby, Colorado, a mural festival created a clash over art, so the town decided it needed a public art policy. CPR's Stephanie Wolf reports that a number of other Colorado communities are developing plans for public art as well. Granby hasn't had an art policy since its founding in 1905. That was until the Rocky Mountain Walls Festival in June. Muralists, many from Denver, transformed the exteriors of buildings along Main Street into colorful works of art. Some loved them, some didn't, and the social media debate got heated. Mayor Paul Shavesty says even though the town got more positive than negative responses to the murals, he still thinks the public needs more say on public art. I would just prefer that residents get to choose what's in their town. Just have a good open forum. This month, the Board of Trustees will select members for the town's first public art committee to develop a policy and a budget. The way I view it is the art is part of a downtown renewal. Part of an interesting downtown is to have artwork and to have places to go and look and and just pause and spend time with it. Granby is one of the latest Colorado communities formalizing or expanding public art. Other places include Windsor, Severance, Superior, and Craig. At least 7% of Colorado's 270 cities and towns have official public art programs, according to a Colorado Creative Industries list. Jen Crava is with Forecast Public Art, which works with communities across the country. She thinks it's becoming more common to have a public art program. Because cities are seeing the effects of programs that have been established for a while, Effects ranging from economic benefits, creating a sense of place, and engaging residents. As more cities and towns across the country hop on the public art bandwagon, Krava has seen a shift toward more community involvement. There's more emphasis put on really understanding and listening to what a community needs and wants. And then designing and working with the public. The town of Windsor in Weld County surveyed residents about public art. Windsor's culture supervisor, Laura Browarney, says more than 600 people responded. An overwhelming majority of people were actually in support of having more art around town. Residents got to weigh in on what kind of art they want. The top two choices, which are kind of opposites, were like memorial art, so like things to commemorate important people and places, and then Whimsical art. Windsor is taking this up now in part because so many people are moving to town. With all of this growth, they need to be taking into consideration other factors aside from just building houses, but also create spaces that have art in them that help to build a sense of community and a sense of place here. She says there was also a surprising amount of support for using public funds. But public spending is often an issue. 
It's criticism Kentucky sculptor Dow Bloomberg has heard a lot. He was in Colorado earlier this summer to install Superior's first commissioned public artwork, a massive sculpture in the center of a busy roundabout. The work features three towering abstract figures. They look windblown as they arch their chest up to the sky with arms extended toward each other. During the install, a driver shouted, what a waste of money. Bloomberg disagrees. To me, it speaks that our leadership views community as more than a place to sleep, eat, and work. That there's other qualities that are necessary for life and art and music and things like this are integral to a high quality of life. Communities hope public art will also draw tourists, even when it gets controversial. Remember that big troll sculpture in Breckenridge last year? It became so popular, the town had to relocate it to manage the crowds. Melanie Kilpatrick is president of the Northwest Colorado Arts Council in Craig. She says she wouldn't mind that at all. I don't think it's a bad thing to have some controversy with some public art because I think that'll put some attention on our community. The Granby murals also attracted lots of tourists. Though beyond major projects like these, it's hard to say how significant of an economic impact smaller pieces have. Granby resident Tracy Navarrete welcomes the attention the murals brought to her town. She created the Granby Mural Debate Facebook page to keep things civil when the controversy broke out. It was nothing, though, compared to a 2004 event when an angry citizen built an armored bulldozer and plowed through more than a dozen buildings on Main Street. It became known as the Killdozer event. We still have people who come and they want to know where the dozer went. What buildings did it destroy? Where were you? Did you know the man? Navarrete says she'd take a debate over public art any day. I'm Stephanie Wolf, CPR News. And I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. You can follow me on Twitter at CPR Warner, and the show is at Colorado Matters. This is CPR News.